Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. I walked away from the oldest, most famous broadcasting company in the world. And suddenly here we are. Jake Humphrey has been a familiar face. National TV sports presenter. As an entrepreneur, TV presenter. So much for watching it with us on the BBC. He's also now a podcaster. I became real obsessed about how to be the best presenter I could be. I loved working with Holly. We were like brother and sister. And then one day she rang me, she said, hi, I'm just ringing to let you know I'm leaving the BBC. I'm joining ITV. There was this big backlash. And I was like, wow, okay, fuck. I guess that no longer defines me. I remember standing there in the pit lane in Melbourne and the chain, boom, 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 started ringing in my ears. And I remember, honestly, I just thought, I'm only here because I failed my A-levels. Biggest challenge that you remember. What was that for you? Without a doubt. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Road to Success. Today, I'm with Jake Humphrey, a very familiar face in the world of sports broadcasting and someone that I was very excited to have on the podcast. Were you? Because I've looked up to for a number of years. That and means you're young, though, my mate. podcast. <laughs> that means I've you're young. I've seen you doing lots of things with high performance. Yeah, I am. I've seen you yeah. for a long time so on you? the screens. I am uh, 24. What are you? So you were born in... 99. Oh man, so you were two when I started out on Children's BBC, so wow, okay. I've seen your face a lot, old. No doubt many people watching will already be familiar with what you do, what you have done, and would have seen your face, I'm sure, in various different places across their television journey. But for those who maybe don't know or want an understanding, Jake, in your own words, who are you and what do you do? Who am I? That's a good one, actually. For a long time, I think I would have defined myself as a TV presenter. But I think I probably wouldn't do that now. I'm kind of someone that's just exploring what's about. Like, I'm 45. I've got two kids. I'm married. I've got a production company business. I've got a few other investments. I was on the telly for a long time. I might go back there. Who knows? But I 
I guess that no longer defines me. I'm just, uh, I'm just someone that's exploring really and quite enjoying it. And to get to the stage, as you mentioned in your forties, where you're exploring and enjoying it, mm. having the freedom to be able to do things after a really successful career, what I'd like to do is actually delve into how you've got to this position today. What has been those key defining moments that's actually got you to this position? I'd like to start way back uh, with the cliche question of what did you want to be when you were growing up? I had absolutely no idea. Honestly, mate, I had no idea what I wanted to be when uh, when I was growing up. I think people often think of someone who's done what I've done or had the the career that I've had and think, oh, he must have known from a young age. There must be something special about him that has sort of set him apart. But that's not true. There was nothing, and it actually is nothing special about me. I had no idea what I, what I wanted to do as a young guy. I didn't do very well at school. I wasn't in any of the sports teams. I wasn't in the acting gang. I wasn't very cool. I didn't have a massive group of friends. I just like floated along really. I think there's one thing that my parents gave me and I think I actually attribute all my success to this one thing, work ethic. They gave me an unbelievable work ethic. So I was doing a paper round seven days a week when I would have been uh, 12, 12, 13. And that includes a Sunday where I'd have to cycle home to get the papers because they were, the Sunday papers were so big, it would literally fill the bag. So it would go like two feet out. I'd have to be on a bike wobbling through the town where I lived and then go home, load it up again, go again. And it was hard, man, always having to be out of bed at half five, six o'clock in the morning. And I remember then my mum and dad said to me, well, you're up early, so why don't you walk the dog before you do your paper round? Give the dog a quick run. So I I used to give the dog a run and then come home and then do my paper round and then get ready for school, then go to school. I had to be at school by eight o'clock. And that work ethic was really important. Then on a Saturday, my dad said, look, on a Saturday morning, you, when you finished your paper round, before you go and hang out with your mates and do other stuff, there's a guy in the village, an old man who needs his garden doing. So for five quid an hour, I used to do this guy's garden. So that idea of of grafting was instilled in me at a really early age. And I think now I find it really helpful. I think like whenever I'm a bit anxious about something or I'm not sure what direction something is going to go or is something going to be a success or a failure, I lean in every single time to hard work. And pretty much when I do that, the outcome is successful. And I read uh, that, I don't know if it's true or not, that one of your jobs after that paper round was actually working in McDonald's. Correct, yeah. And you got fired, am I right? Yeah, I did, yeah. And why did you get fired? Lack of communication skills. Which is unbelievable because as a fellow host and sat on my podcast, look at where we're at now. Mate, so it shows how much uh, a journey can change for somebody. In so, Yes, it does. But it also is a good reminder now that I sit here talking to you 45 years old that those hard times are not necessarily the bad times and I think one of the common mistakes that a lot of people make is is mistaking a comma for a full stop like shit stuff's going to come your way it is going to come your way hard days are going to be there I think that the answer is to realise actually how powerful you are how much you can do you know whenever someone goes through trauma has a challenging time you'll always hear them say oh, I didn't realise how strong I was like it's hard to understand your strength until you have to rely on that strength. And, you know, you've had moments in your life and challenges in your background that have led you there. And I'm sure you found that you had more strength than you thought. 
So now I reflect on those hard times um, as not bad times. They were hard times, but they were good times because they built the person that, that sits here today without question. So how much better would you say that you are at dealing with things today than you were when those hard times came between the early eight stages oh, of your career? Hugely different. I mean, I was a very late developer. So when I got fired from McDonald's, I was, I was, um, I was sort of so naive and so young. I didn't really have a toolkit. Like I think we all need a toolkit in life, right? So that when these things come our way, whether it is failure, if it's success, if it's praise, if it's challenge, if it's self-doubt, if it's fear, whatever the thing is that starts to crop up, like having that toolkit is really valuable. I didn't have a toolkit when I was in my late teens and I'd lost my job at McDonald's or I failed my A-levels and all these things. Didn't have it. So I just kind of just carried on going, just carried on going forwards. And it was only a few years ago that I was in a petrol station and there was a guy stacking the shelves, a guy called Ray. And he went, mate, I worked with you when you were a waiter. And so after I'd been fired from McDonald's, I got a job as a waiter. Cause you know, with my parents, you couldn't not have a job for a bit. So I got a job as a waiter. Loved it actually. He goes, I remember you were constantly worried you were going to lose your job. I was like, was I? And I don't have any memory of that. He's like, yeah, yeah. You just kept saying to me every, after every shift, have I done okay? Have I done all right? Am I going to get fired? And he's like, you were never going to get fired. You were doing great. You were great to work with. But obviously that had left a mark and a bit of a scar. Um, I don't remember it, but there was obviously a value in that straight away that it was like, right, I'm going to work hard. I'm going to care. It obviously bothered me. So were you the noisy kid in class? You mentioned you were quite... Um, no, I don't think I was. I don't think I'm the noisy kid now. Like I think that when people see that you've had a broadcasting career and you're a podcaster and a TV presenter and own a few businesses and stuff, I think that people think you're outgoing. I'm actually not. I'm actually a, like, I'm actually a bit of an introvert, to be honest. That's not something you usually associate with sort of entrepreneurial flair mm. and sort of being dominant in front of the camera. Yeah. I'd always be the first to leave a party. I find small talk really difficult. I feel awkward in social situations. Um, but I'm all right with all of that stuff now because I think for a long time it was about like hiding all of that and just being like being sort of gregarious and being outgoing. Um, because also I got judged, you got judged on on that back in the day. So I remember when I got the Formula One job, which was a massive deal for me. I was in my late twenties. I landed this incredible presenting job back in 2009. And I remember going into my first meeting at the BBC. I was late actually. So I was really sort of embarrassed. I was late for this meeting. And it was David Coulthard who just retired from Formula One, Eddie Jordan, the former team boss, Martin Brundle, like legendary Susie. F1 broadcaster. Susie, she, so she replaced me. Okay. When I left, Susie became the, the Formula One presenter. So she'd done the bikes and then she did Formula One. But I was in this room of all these like amazing, high achieving people. And I just went to my natural state of, I'm just going to be quiet and listen. And then afterwards, I remember my boss saying, you didn't say very much. You didn't impose yourself on the room or let people know what you were thinking. But I think... Like, I think we've reached a point now where we're better at celebrating the quiet leader. Like if you look at loads of businesses and loads of sports, whether it's, you know, Graham Potter or Gareth Southgate or James Timpson, um, I think that we're really good at promoting 
quiet leaders, Josh Butler, the former captain of the England one day team, like they're quiet leaders and it's quiet leaders are more empathetic. They're more understanding. They're more open to other people's emotions and other people's thoughts. And I think that was really just a, a calling card for me. And probably the thing that stood to me in great stead. I remember I was quite badly bullied at one point And one of the teachers said to my parents, the problem is with him is that he's a, he's, he understands people emotion, people's emotions. So he can be empathetic and understanding and caring and he knows what other people are going through. And this was at a time where we were all like 14, 15 year old lads and it was just about having a laugh, you know, slapping each other with a towel or winding each other up or whatever. And I, there was a bit more going on in my brain. And I think what caused me a few issues then probably is really helpful now. I just feel like you, mate, I just love who are people? What are people? How have you got here? We're all just doing our best, right? And it's quite tricky to actually unpick this so far of how that person ended up <clears throat> on the Formula One grid with a microphone in their hand. Yes, probably. But, probably but so, is. So before we ask about what um, the first step in to that, how that actually happened, what I'd like to ask is, we touched on how you were as a kid, but we didn't touch on what you actually liked. Were you interested in motorsport? Do you remember any moments? What about no. football? No sports? Not really. So you weren't playing sport on the playground when you were growing up? I did a bit. I liked football. I supported Norwich City. But interestingly, like my obsession, and maybe it's a bit like kids now, like you know how now they're just also all about FIFA and the ratings and, and all of that okay. sort of stuff. For me, it was like, where are players going? Where are they signing? Where have they come from? What's been their background? Are they playing? Are they dropped? Are they on the bench? So actually, all of the softer stuff, rather than just like, how well do they kick a ball? Where's their best position on the football field? And that sort of stuff. And what was the result in the game? Like, I did 10 years hosting football programs. And I just, I never once cared about the result. You know, all the guys around me, like really cared about what the result was in that game of football, but there was, I, I didn't care. I, my interest in the game is the human element rather than necessarily the physical element or the results based element. I think you'd have been brilliant at creating the match attacks cards with all that research hey, into that. people. Oh, that, you'd have probably yeah. upset some people in the process. But how does that person then take that knowledge and apply themselves in front of a camera live with a microphone in their hand? How did you fall into that world? Uh, that person gets lucky. And I honestly think I got lucky um, and found something that brought me to life for the first time. You know, like you have to paint a picture here of a kid living in a village without loads of friends, not the cool kid, working a lot, but not much else going on, messing up his exams at school, getting fired from McDonald's, just like a bit of a late developer. Like there was nothing cool about me, mate. Like I meet now these amazing 18, 19, 20, 21 year old entrepreneurs that have created their own brands and are worth millions of pounds. And I think, my goodness, I was so far away from that. So far away. But I quite like that because I think we live in a world now where we feel like if we haven't made it by 2021, 22, like there's a problem. Look at that. So young. I actually find, sorry, I find the stories about people that also start when they're around 40 just as interesting yeah. as that though. Because with so many people then, and you've got the, at one end, the kids that think they need to do something mm. and then the people that think it's too late to do yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. But definitely kids have a lot more pressure these days. 
there's a lovely phrase, you know, from the, from the Stoics, which is the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. And I think there's this of, often this feeling, well, if I didn't plant a tree 20 years ago, I've missed the opportunity. Like in life, you've never missed the opportunity. Just because you didn't do it then doesn't mean you shouldn't give it a go. Like I'm more excited now at 45 about what lies ahead than I've ever been in my life. So I went into this period in my life where I stumbled really honestly, mate, stumbled into television and something just clicked. So I can probably trace it back to the work ethic again. Like I remember when I did work experience, you know, and like you're in, is it year 10, you're in and you go and do a like few weeks work experience or a couple of weeks. I did that and got an amazing report. And my parents and the teachers didn't understand it. They were like, well, this like Mr. Average is getting this amazing report as a, as a guy who's just done some work experience at the local paper. But I could see for the first time the kind of effort versus reward thing. And actually I was probably doing that in all the jobs I was doing, but there was no one to observe it. So they were like, oh, this guy works really hard. And I'm thinking, oh, of course I work really hard. Like I've always worked hard. I just don't, I never saw the point of working hard at school, which I have to be careful telling my kids. I just, I didn't understand why I had to learn the things I had to learn. Therefore I lost interest. Therefore I didn't do what I, what I could have done. You know, there was no flow at school. There was no, there's no sense of satisfaction. It was just going through the motions. I didn't really like it. So I failed my A-levels, right? Not long after getting fired from McDonald's, I got an E, an N and a U. I had to go back to school to redo them. And the plan was go back, redo them, get some better grades, work a bit harder, care a bit more and get to university. And when I went back to school, I was in my politics class and a local TV channel handed out a letter and it was for some politics students to go on a politics show and talk about political issues. I thought, well, why not? Why don't I just, why don't I just go on there? So I went on and, um, and I went, and I remember going to them and saying, like, all my mates have gone off to uni. They're having gap years. They've got jobs. I haven't done any of those things. I've basically messed up and I'm back at school. Remember like I was with the kids a year below me. So they're looking at me going, why is that older kid back in the classroom? And I'm not talking to anyone because I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. I'm like back in class with kids that I hadn't met. Like you got to swallow your pride in that moment. You just got to swallow your pride, get on with it, which is another really important lesson. And so when I went to this TV channel, I said to them, look guys, I, I, I'd love to come and do some work experience here. And they gave me an opportunity just to go there. And I remember they used to pay me five pounds cash to work on a Saturday and a Sunday. And at the end of the Sunday evening, I'd line up with the rest of the kids doing a bit of work experience and give me five quid cash out of the petty, petty cash tin. And, and I worked there for a while and they couldn't afford presenters, right? Because it was a tiny TV channel. So they used to ask anyone and everyone to do some presenting. So I got the chance to do some little bits of presenting. And then they ran a competition for viewers to send in a home video. And the best home video got to host an entire show from Paris. And they didn't have any viewers. Therefore, they didn't get any videos. Therefore, the guys who were like the work experience people or the runners or the helpers, they were asked to make a video. So I made a video. The producer, a guy called Roger, just decided I was the winner. And I went to Paris. My parents were against it because they're like, no, you need to concentrate on your exams. You've got to go to university. Went to Paris and did this show from Paris. Came back. Um, and like, you know, this is a tiny little tin pot TV channel in Norwich. Like this, isn't, this was no 
like deal. Do you know what I mean? It was tiny, tiny, but it felt like a big deal to me. Came back. And a few weeks after that, the male presenter left on this show that I was the helper on. And they said to me, well, can you step up and host it? And they offered to double my money. So I used to get £10 cash at the end of a Sunday after hosting a three-hour show on a Saturday and a three-hour show on a Sunday. And this was at the same time as doing my A-levels. And then I finally got good enough grades, not great, a couple of C's and a D or something, but enough, like fine. Never went to uni. Got a job, about six and a half thousand pounds a year working at this TV channel as a kind of like general dog's body. And that was the beginning of my TV career. Just to touch on that there. Yeah. When... All that, I say was going wrong. When you were just trying mm. to find the next steps, you mentioned when sat for McDonald's, you're behind with education. You spoke about your parents earlier on and how they were massive advocates of grafting, mm. working hard. It sounds like they're that kind of mindset. Yeah. What kind of life did you go back to at home when you got through the door, when you were in that kind of moment in your life? Were you under a lot of pressure? Were they uh, uh, not very happy with you or were they really they supportive? They definitely weren't happy but they were incredibly loving. Like I, I can't remember, you know, when you have a really clear memory, I don't have a really clear memory, but I do remember a memory where I'd messed up and things were going wrong and they would like lay some home truths out. Yeah. And you'd be like, wow, okay. That's the way the world is. Okay. And you'd go upstairs and sit on your bed. And then your mom or dad, 10 minutes later would come in, sit down, put their arm around you and just say, look, we love you. Like We just want the best for you. We're not angry. We're just, disappointed like we know you've got so much more to give than this and that was actually a great fire in me like that idea of this idea of being a disagreeable giver you know saying you've got so much more than you're showing I expect loads from you therefore you need to show it it was actually a really powerful thing for me but the other sort of abiding memory of what my parents were like was they just were kind of like had this mindset of you just got to get through this. There's only one way through this and it's forwards. So I was really badly bullied for two or three years. And I remember like still the emotion in my stomach of my mum driving off and leaving me standing on the pavement, watching the car drive off thinking, shit, man, I've got to go in here now and deal with this crap for the next seven or eight hours till it's home time. And actually that, that takes real resilience to put your backpack on every day, walk through those blue doors into that school to just get pelters, Right. The only way you get that resilience is by keeping going. Makes you tougher. Makes you tougher. And I think too often these days, as particularly as parents and as a parent now, we helicopter people. Like we float around our young people. We we solve all the problems in front of them. We we go and have the tough conversations on their behalf. You can't do that. You can't helicopter your kids because you end up with young people with no resilience, mate. So when you ended up in front of the camera with that microphone in your hand... That was after you'd been running around at a TV cha uh, channel at university at 6,000 quid. So where, when did that start opening up into you actually in front of camera? So I always did bits of presenting. So I won that competition while I was redoing my A-levels, right? And then I got the chance to do bits of, little bits of hosting here and there. And then I landed the, the actual hosting job working on this show. So finished the A-levels, binned off uni, stayed in Norwich, lived at home, worked for six and a half K a year at this local TV channel. It's called Rapture TV. And 
part of my job was doing bits of presenting. And one day, one of the guys, a guy called Martin, said, you should make a showreel. And I didn't even know what a showreel was. I was like, well, well what is that? And he said, it was like a sh- it's like your best bits, basically, your best bits. I said, okay, well, let's do it together. So we made this showreel. I still remember I put my old phone number on. I used to, I wrote Jake Humphrey, presenter showreel, and my mobile phone number on those stickers on the VHS, those white, long, thin stickers, slapped it on. And I was like, well, now what do I do? And he's like, well, you need to watch some TV programs, see the name that comes up at the end, and then try and find an address to write to that person. And I still got in the house a stack this big of rejection letters saying, you're not what we're looking for. You're not who we need. And those things were my fuel, man. So I used to go to London, sleep on friends' floors and go to meetings. And just, I'd I'd sort of resolved at this point that, so just to backtrack slightly, when I was doing the presenting, I found it easy. I felt like I was in flow. I love the challenge. I wanted to, I wanted more of it. Like I would, if it was a live show I was doing, and I would count the segments to see if I've got more than my co-host. I would try and bring everything to the table. I used to record every morning the big breakfast with Johnny Vaughan and try and copy exactly what Johnny Vaughan was doing on my own little cable TV channel. And so I became real obsessed about how to be the best presenter I could be. And the only answer was hard work. Like think about it a lot, practice it at home. Quite analytical. Yeah. Watch loads of shows. Like you don't, I don't, you don't stumble into this shit, man. You don't stumble in. Like you can't stumble through. You've got to, you've got to really think about what's going on. And at this point I became a thinker. I was like, right. I didn't really think through my school days. I just floated. I'm not floating now. This is now different. So I'm making plans. I'm moving to London. I'm backing myself. I'm sleeping on friends' floors. But no, 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 no is the answers that I'm getting. And then one day I got a phone call. I sit on my desk in Norwich at Rapture. The phone rang. And this voice went, I was watching the TV this weekend. You're a shining star in a sea of shit. I was like, right. In other words, the channel's crap, but you're not. And I went down and met this guy called Paul, who was, he was legendary for helping young presenters come through at the BBC, like Zoe Ball and Jamie Theakston and Philip Schofield and all these other people that made their name on kids telly. He was the guy that helped them to get there. We had a couple of conversations and whatever, but it didn't lead to anything. And then I got a letter back from one of my showreels from Blue Peter asking me to go for an audition. And I remember I went for an audition just like a, in the Blue Peter Garden. Then I got called back to the last four. And I was like, fuck, man. I'm in the last four for Blue Peter. And this is the days where Blue Peter was the biggest kids show. Millions watched it. It was on I did. three times a week, five o'clock. It was like the holy grail of kids presenting. It was either Saturday morning, kids telly or Blue Peter. So I got this audition for Blue Peter and... um went down to London. I can still remember the very like real raw emotions of what I had to do. The feeling of being in the huge TC one. I can still remember what I was wearing. It's like graphite gray t-shirt, the smell, like these massive cameras that I could see in the room. It was just like, it was sensory overload. And I didn't get the job. The following morning I woke up after the audition or two, two mornings later and my dad went, you've got a letter. And it had the BBC stamp on it. I was like, wow. And it was a letter to say, you didn't get the job and we're returning your showreel. I was like, wow, this world is brutal. So I didn't get the job. 
and they didn't even want to keep hold of my showreel. So I thought that must have been bad. I actually, you know, taking on the analytical side, I actually pursued a conversation with the editor and said, what was the issue? They just said, well, you're just not ready. You're a bit young. You're a bit raw. We've gone with somebody else. And that was fine. <clears throat> and then there was a kid's TV show called Against All Odds. And it was like reconstructions of real life emergencies. And they wanted uh, they wanted someone to do some reporting. And my showreel was on the desk. And someone mentioned that I'd been auditioned for Blue Peter in the room. And so they said, well, let's let's use him for this. So suddenly I got my first break, which was doing bits of reporting on this kid's TV show. It was a tiny job. It was like 10 days work or whatever. It was no big deal. And they did that and then carried on doing what I was doing in uh, in Norwich. And then the Children's BBC set up a channel, a brand new channel called the CBBC Channel. And amazingly, the person who'd asked me to do Against All Odds and Paul, the guy who'd rang me when I was at my desk and wanted to have a meeting, and the lady called Amanda who had auditioned me for Blue Peter, those three were all charged with finding the new bunch of presenters for the CBBC channel. And that's why I ended up as a presenter. I, I got offered the job because they'd seen what I'd done. And it's a really great reminder that, you know, again, those things individually all felt like full stops, but they were all commas. And actually all of them led me to a place that was incredible, which was the opportunity to host on live kids telly for eight, 10, 12 hours a day. For, for eight years, which is where I built all my skills up as a live broadcaster. And during those eight years, how long was it before you stopped feeling like you worried about how your last present, how you last were on TV, if you were going to keep your job, if you were going to make the next episode? Did you get rid of those kind of emotions and that, that way of thinking as you went along that eight year journey? Or were you always really still looking over your shoulder? I've not done a single TV show in my entire career and thought it's good. Not one. I've done shows where I feel like I brought real value, like things were going wrong and I was able to control it or we had great fun and whatever. But never was I satisfied. I'd be happy and think I did a good job, but never satisfied. There was always more. There was always improvements. There was, there's always this fear of someone else is going to be the next great thing to appear and you're going to have to be on your metal. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And I think it's really healthy. I think the minute that I thought I'd cracked it as a presenter, there'd be trouble, you know. Um, I never felt like that. I still don't feel like that. 
Um, but I don't think it's a bad thing. And where did you go from there? How did you end up going from a children's TV channel for eight years, which is quite a long yeah. chunk of life. Yeah. That's a long chunk of career and focusing on that thing. And as you mentioned before, you weren't actually that interested in sport. You're more interested in the analytics of it, which actually, when you think about it and you say you were quite analytical yeah. when you were working in those channels about the way that you actually looked at your presenting, if you had slightly more than your co-host, what your questions, well, that actually probably comes from that kind of using your brain in that way when you were younger mm. to actually focus on the analytics yeah, more, than, more than the bit. You can start to try and make little tiebacks to those things. But how did you end up on a Formula One grid? How did I end up on a Formula One grid, mate? I've asked myself that question so many times. So My favourite sport, <laughs> mate. <I Yeah>. <laughs> so that children's... TV journey was a wild ride. Like I ended up hosting Fame Academy's spin-off on Kids Telly with Holly Willoughby. And I loved working with Holly. We were like brother and sister. Uh, we stayed together while we were working together because she lived in Brighton. So she just stayed at my flat for a few months at a time. It was incredible. Um, Very lucky. We had a great time. <laughs> we had a great time. And then the BBC came to us one day and said, we love you and Holly working together. We want to give you a contract to develop some entertainment formats with you two as a, as a duo, as a double act. And I was like, that's a dream. And, um, they said, but it's important you understand this isn't an offer for one or other of you. It's an offer for both of you. So if one of you doesn't accept it, we withdraw the whole thing. And I was like, straight away, I said, well, I'm in. Like, there's no question, man. I love working for the Beeb. I love working with Holly. I see my future here. I'll, this would be great. And she said, okay, I, I love the idea of it. Let me have a think. And then she stopped talking to me about it. And I kept being like, Holly, what have you decided? What are we doing? And she kept sort of sidestepping it. question. And then one day she rang me. She said, hi, I'm just ringing to let you know I'm leaving the BBC. I'm joining ITV. So I was like, oh man, that was that moment. That was that sliding doors moment. And I actually thought that was the chance to do something incredible would kind of pass me by. But then... The Beeb, the Children's BBC were great. I ended up doing Saturday morning kids telly, which for me was the holy grail of children's TV. And I loved that. And I love the fact that I was a Saturday morning kids TV host. Fantastic. And, and while I was doing that, I was really interested in sport. And suddenly Children's BBC, and again, this is where luck comes in and you can't discount luck and fortune. I, I totally understand if you don't apply yourself, work hard, um, find your passion, surround yourself with good people, be a good person. I know, I understand if you don't do all those things, the luck will pass you by. You need to set yourself up for it. You can't just sit there going, well, where's my fucking luck? You need to put yourself on? in the luckiest position for yes, luck. Yes, you need to be there to take advantage of it. But it's still lucky for me that they decided to create a sports spin-off of News Round called Sports Round. So I auditioned for that and I got that job. Amazing. Then... Again, lucky, there was a sort of a message from the very top of the BBC to BBC Sport to say your sports coverage needs to be cooler and a bit younger. Are there any cool young presenters about? And I was the only guy doing sports telly on kids telly. And the problem with TV is like, for a creative industry, a lot of people lack imagination. So people couldn't just see a guy on kids telly and think, oh, he'll be a great sports presenter. They almost had to see it. But I was doing that. I was doing sports presenting. I was going to big events and reporting. And so I was asked to uh, go and have a meeting about Formula One. I was then asked to create two sides of A4 on how I would host F1 if I got the opportunity. 
And actually it was all the things that came to be. It was being in the pit lane, being in the garages, um, and a red button F1 forum, getting to the heart of it, making the audience feel like they're right there rather than standing on the edge and watching. Um, so I had a couple of meetings and got called in one day and they said, I still remember it was a guy called Mark Wilkin and Niall Sloan. And they said, Mr. Sloan and Mr. Wilkin would like to offer you the job of hosting Formula One. I said, Mr. Humphrey would love to accept. <laughs> that was the moment. And then um, the rule was I couldn't tell anyone because they were going to announce it in the new year, like January, February, ahead of the new season. And I remember they made the announcement at 10 o'clock in the morning. And my wife rang me at half 10 in floods of tears. I said, what's the matter? I hadn't even told your wife. She knew. So okay. she knew, but it wasn't public knowledge. So my wife and my family knew, but it wasn't public. And it went public at 10 o'clock one Thursday morning. My wife rang me at half 10 crying. I said, what's the matter? She said, I've just been on the internet. Everyone thinks you're going to be shit. And I was like, wow, okay, fuck. So there was this big backlash that this guy from Kids Telly had been given the job on Formula One. But again, resilience came to the fore. The only way through that, you know, what my parents say, you got to walk into that. Walk forwards, man. Chest out, off you go. So I did. And I went to China to watch Steve Ryder host one of his last races for ITV. And I remember seeing it and thinking, I can't do that. Like it looked beyond my skill set. Huge big grandstand. You're on your own in the pit lane. You're connected just by radio talkback. You've got a cameraman and you've got so few people around you. It looks really exposed. You've got cars roaring by. You're trying to carry a live TV show. I just honestly, I just thought this is beyond me. Um, and then Melbourne 2009 rolled around and I was told by my boss, he said, just remember in the first 30 seconds, everyone will decide whether you're the right person for this job, including me. I was like, okay. And I've been given a one year contract. If it had gone wrong, I wouldn't have carried on. It wasn't like a guarantee of anything. And um, I remember standing there in the, pit lane in Melbourne and the, the chain started ringing in my ears and I remember honestly I just thought I'm only here because I failed my A-levels like, if I'd have passed those exams I'd have gone to uni with thousands of other people looking for a job in telly eventually but that A-level failure leading to Rapture leading to CBBC leading to Formula One I was in that pit lane because of that failure like if that isn't a message for people about seeking and embracing and recovering from failure, I don't know what is. And that was the start of the greatest four years ever. And it's amazing how now you can even look back on that and take some huge enjoyment because recently on your own podcast, you've got the High Performance Podcast, podcast that I admire. I've watched myself. In Thank fact, you, I watched your most recent episode uh, with Alex Albon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Great the other conversation. Week. Great yeah. conversation. Fascinating guy. But that must be incredible now to be able to look back and think, I was so worried and anxious standing in that pit lane, but I just had to chest out and get on with it. Mm. And then and now, fast forward, and you've got Fernando Alonso coming in, sitting down off seat, yeah. who you'd have literally been commentating on back yeah, in the day. So he, he didn't want to tap you in the nuts or anything for saying anything about him back then, did he? No. <laughs> like, no, some presenters, like some presenters yeah. get, like, well, yeah. no, it's him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was all right. I've always tried to be fair, but it's a lovely feeling that I suppose, like, I loved doing Formula One. I loved then going, being given the challenge of hosting football. I did 10 years, man, hosting football coverage. And that's like, 
Liverpool in a European final, Man City winning the Champions League, an All-English final, FA Cup finals, Community Shields, the game that gave Liverpool the Premier League. Like I experienced every emotion you could as a, as a live football host, which again was fantastic. But none of that felt purpose-driven compared to doing high performance. And that's the fascinating thing. Like a lot of people crave the... I guess the kudos and maybe the ego leap that comes with being on the telly or doing these big shows or being the main man or the main woman hosting these things. But for me, it's not about the big numbers or the TV channel or anything anymore. It's about really finding a purpose-driven life and having the freedom to talk in the way I really want to talk. And that's why um, I love that time. And I feel like in many ways, that story is the, is what equipped me for for where I am now. You know, and again, that was eight years of being a basic a football host, the main host, yeah. Champions League. We're not talking about the the smaller league matches here. There's mm. insane times. I remember as a Liverpool fan myself watching the bus go around the streets yeah, near Anfield yeah. and everybody cheering and thinking that was just like this isn't going to happen again for a very long time. I've actually got um in my garage next to my cars the Liverpool signed Champions League by every one of the players' yeah. shirt on the wall. Nice, one of my prized possessions. <laughs> Nice. But that's because I loved football when I was growing up. Yeah. And that's because I ended up learning a lot about football because I'm watching it because yeah. it's a hobby and a sport. What I'm fascinated about is we actually spoke before we come on um, today about how do, do you, you asked me, how do you find the time to do these things? I went, well, how do you find the time to do these things? A kind of spin off to that is when you're stood in a pit lane, you mentioned you went to one race the previous season yeah. before that in Singapore. How do you gain enough knowledge in your head that you've got enough stuff to talk about about the next thing that you're doing moving from a children's channel to formula one like steve that's mm. sat here just to give us a bit more context um in steve. the corner he the knows one he knows Absolutely. way more about formula one than what i do and followed yeah. it for years so when we're sat sometimes as a group of lads around the sofa watching it they'll relay facts years ago that i just have no idea mm. about how do you navigate that as a tv host you work hard mate it comes back to hard work again. Everything comes back to hard work because I was standing in that pit lane and I said to David, cool and Eddie Jordan, who were the two pundits, right? I was really honest with would them. would know a lot going back no, and, and I said to them both, I said, look, my knowledge of Formula One is never going to be your knowledge of Formula One. You've seen and done so much more than me. My job is to make you look great and to get the best out of you. The best TV hosts in sport are like a referee. You don't notice them, but they let everything smoothly happen around them. They're the conduit for the good stuff to happen. So I was very clear with them. I'm never going to fuck you over, cause you a problem on the telly. I will look after you. I'll get you on. I'll get you off. I'll move you to the right places because I don't want you worrying about all the stuff I'm thinking about. I'm hearing seven or eight different voices in my talk back. There's loads going on. Not for you to worry about. Let me deal with everything. You just be the best you you can be on the telly talking about the sport. But help me out as well. Understand that I'm new to this. I'm in my late 20s. I'm trying to make my way in the industry. I won't know as much as you. I'll try and I'll work hard and I'll graft, but just protect me as well. And the three of us created that real band of brothers relationship where we wouldn't ever call someone out. If I was suddenly, obviously struggling to recall something, David already would step in and help me out. But at the same time, I'm interviewing other people. I'm interviewing team bosses and drivers and stuff's happening, you know, like 
a big crash. I need to know like what's, what else has happened in this. So it became a, an incredibly in-depth research job from the minute that I got offered it in November, 2008 to when I started the job in March, 2009. I read every book. I read every magazine. I watched every documentary. I went on the internet because I needed to know if someone said, oh, the, uh, the, the world champion from, um, from, uh, 1992, I had to know who that was, you know, I had to dive in. If someone said, oh, there's, you know, the last fatality in a formula one weekend, you know, the mistake would be to say, well, that would have been a and Senna, but you know, there's a marshal was killed a few years later. That is a, a death in a formula one weekend. It's little things like that. And the formula one, um, community is so knowledgeable that you can't, you can't make really basic errors, but at the same time, they were brilliant with me because they were so welcoming and they were so forgiving. And I think I came at it from like, look, I'm just a fan. I just absolutely love this sport. Love the cars. I love the adrenaline. I love the, the idea of human beings pushing themselves to the limits. Um, so let's just go on this journey together. And if you put up with me, I would get you closer to the, to this sport than ever before. So I would be regularly told off, like the BBC would get official complaints from the teams that I walked into the garage and touched the car ahead of the Grand Prix or picked up the driver's helmet to talk about it or leant in and touched the steering wheel or the front wing or I walked through the back of the garage without permission. But my mission was only take the people at home closer to the sport than they've ever been before. So when Jensen Button won the world title and we're in the garage, surrounded by a throng of people, me, Jensen, David, and Eddie. And he's just got that thousand yard stare. He's just won the world title. He stinks of champagne. My job is just to get that emotion into the living room. That was my only job. And I loved it. And I always struggled more with football because on football, it always felt like we were on the outside looking in. It always feels like you're, you're not really part of that world. Whereas with Formula One, I felt like I was part of that world. And what about the Olympics? Amazing. Like, mate, I hosted the most successful sport track cycling at home games in 2012. Like it doesn't get better than that. I hosted as one of the lead presenters in 2008 when I was in my mid to late twenties. Like as a kid, I was so inexperienced. I was suddenly live on the BBC hosting the Olympics. But the reason why I love doing all these sports isn't really the sport. Like it's the human endeavor. I love asking my pundits, how did you push yourself to the limit? I love seeing a player playing their first game after they've returned from injury to see what is the difference. I love seeing a 95th, 96th minute winner because it shows a real mental resilience. That's what I love. Whether Jensen Button won the race or not, whether Liverpool won the league or not, whether City won the title or not, I don't care. It's the human element. And I think that that's what I've always tried to do in everything I've done. That's the the common thread. That's what high performance is about now. I don't care what you've done. I care how you've done it. And before we get on to the fact that off the back of high performance, <coughs> you're now on to a third book, which is How to Change Your Life. And yeah. in that book, which I'll quiz you on in a minute, there's some key steps about people that have changed their life and how they've done it. Yeah, We've just touched on basically some of the peak moments in your career. There's been many. The Olympics, Formula One for me, amazing. Yeah. Those years of football, but during that time, there's got to be that moment where you had to make a change. There's got to be that biggest mm, challenge that mm. you remember. What was that for you? Without a doubt, walking away from the BBC, man. 
No one. Why does have that. I heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> Who did you hear it from? Ben Collins, the, who was the stick, really? on, stick on Top Gear yeah, yeah. recently, he had the same way. Well, he had to go to court with the BBC, um, ended up having a big legal battle. Why? It was nasty Top Gear for taking his helmet off and saying, I, I was the stick, right. my name is Ben. So I recently have had a similar conversation about BBC, although. Well, mine is different. Like, there was no fallout. I wanted to, to stay... Um, and I was then offered an amazing four-year deal to do match of the day to the Olympics, the Commonwealth Games, Formula One, um, you name it, World Cups, Euros. It was like the most amazing four-year contract that you can ever imagine. And then we found out my wife was having a baby. And I remember we sat at our dining table in London and she said, just tell me all the, all the, stuff that the BBC are offering you again. I said, well, Formula One, she went, well, that's abroad. Yeah. World Cup, abroad. Euros, abroad. Olympics, abroad. Commonwealth Games, abroad. And we eventually realised, like, we're about to have our first child and I'm being offered a contract that basically takes me out of the country for four years straight. So the BBC was my spiritual home. I loved working there. I still love it. I still pine for the BBC. But like there was this kind of, how to describe it, like a miracle really that BT picked up the phone and said, we love you. We love your presenting. You're really super hot right now. Come and join our new channel. But that was a huge leap because no one worked for BT Sport. The BT Sport didn't exist. So I walked away from the oldest, most famous broadcasting company in the world. And two weeks later, walked into BT Sport with five people sitting around a table. And that was it. And do you think that was one of the best decisions of your career so far? Yeah. yeah, I got the chance to help create a TV channel. How often is that going to come around? I got the chance to be at home with my newborn daughter and my son as well, now my wife. I got the chance to move back home to the countryside where I'm from. I got the chance to host Champions League finals. I got the chance to host our national sport. It also gave me the chance to create high performance. I did it because I had this, the spare time and the spare capacity. Um, it allowed me to grow my production company, The Whisper Group, which is now almost 300 people strong, almost a $100 million turnover production business. I managed to do all these other things um, because I took the, took the leap to join BT Sport. And I think the message there is that things are going to be scary in life. Like scary stuff is going to come along, but just doing the same old thing is not always the answer because if you just do the same old thing, you'll never get a chance to do something new. Like I'm now okay that I'm no longer hosting football on BT Sport because there's nothing on that channel that I've not done. I've done an English Champions League winner. I've done an English Champions League loser. I've done an all English Champions League final. I've done Liverpool's long wait for the Premier League title. I've done relegation battles. I've done FA Cup finals. I've done underdogs beating big teams. I've done big teams beating underdogs, big teams going toe-to-toe. -to -toe. Every possible emotion you can experience as a sports broadcaster working in football, I've experienced. Every possible skill of mine that I needed to use, I've used. So what is it about now? It's about doing something different. It's about working out what is this world of podcasting all about? Why is the, the first seven or eight seconds of your trailer so bloody important? Why does the title you give your video on YouTube mean the difference between success and failure? Why 
does social media spend open you to eyeballs around the world? How can we grow a brand called High Performance, a performance brand in Australia? How can we become massive in America? How can we become the biggest podcast in the UK? How can we do live shows, live events? How can we create a foundation? How can I build this to be my legacy? How can I create something that my son or daughter might one day want to run? How can I create something that spins off documentary series and TV shows and a YouTube channel and a podcast channel and some amazing clips? How can I get that stuff and get it into schools and get it on the national curriculum? Like my brain is now alive and buzzing with what high performance can become. And I wouldn't have the opportunity to do this if I was still talking about Spurs against Sunderland. It's just not possible. How can you do that without with keeping a healthy balance at home? <clears throat> have boundaries, have non-negotiables, and remember that um, your diary is your priority. And what have you learned from the people that you've interviewed? What are the five stages of change? Can you explain what they are? Yeah. Absolutely. And I think this is the really important thing, right? We've written this book called How to Change Your Life because there's this feeling that if you find success, you keep hold of it, you stick with it, right? Actually, the world is changing all around. So if you're not changing, then you're going to either get left behind or you're going to find that the things that once worked didn't work. And I'm really passionate, right, that none of us are under any obligation to be the same person in five minutes that we were five minutes ago. You definitely shouldn't be the same person in a year that you were 12 months ago. Life is about growth and change and adaption and movement. And so we wrote a book about the five stages of change, which is the, the dream, the leap, the fight, the climb, and the arrive. Those are the five stages of change. You have to have that dream at the very beginning. But there's also a moment where you have to take the leap. Things are going to go wrong in the middle, which is where you need to fight. Then things start to go well, and that's where you climb. But then arrive also brings with it a challenge as well. And if I think about my own life through that lens, when I was younger, it was all about having that dream, right? It was like, imagine if I just sent my showreel to London. Imagine if I got onto Kids Telly. Imagine if I got the F1 job. Imagine if I went to BT Sport. Imagine if I left and created a podcast. But all of those things involved a leap. I had to leave home. I had to walk away from Kids Telly. I had to back myself in that pit lane in Australia. I had to say no to the BBC on a four-year deal, which really pissed them off. I had to step away from BT Sport to pursue doing a podcast. All of those things like were a leap. And every single one of them at some point felt like a failure. Every single one. Do you think you could have done those things if you didn't have from an early age two supportive parents that pushed you to graft? No. No doubt. No doubt I wouldn't have achieved those things, no. And I think that what my parents didn't do was give us this entrepreneurial mindset of you can do anything you want. There was, there was none from. of that. There was no like, go on, don't go and get a job, go and do something amazing. That was never the message in my family's house. They just wanted, my sister got on the Sainsbury's management training scheme and they were delighted. They were like, yes, job for life, fantastic. For me, this came from success leaves clues. Like success leaves clues. You do something and it goes well. And it makes you feel great. That is success leaving you a clue. There's, a, there's something in this. You hang out with someone and they make you feel fantastic and you do incredible stuff together. Well, success is leaving you a clue. There's something happening there. So I set, I set up a whisper group with a friend of mine. We knew nothing about setting up a production company. 
about hiring people, about creating our culture, about driving change, about cash flow, cash flow, about trying to deal with partners and all these things. And suddenly here we are probably the biggest independent production company in the country. That's all just been learned on the job. But success has left clues. We've made mistakes and not done them again. We've done things that have worked and done more of them. Same with the podcast. Like High performance is only where it is now because it has been a study in failure. Like We're trying to break things all the time because that's where you find where things go wrong. Like I'd love people to walk away from listening to this and be like, I now realize I need to embrace failure. You need to operate in your life in that tiny window where failure is inevitable, where it's going to happen. Because otherwise you're never going to know what your limit is. And then people go, well, that's, if you're failing all the time, you're not successful. Of course you are because the success is here and then the failure is here. So you get all of the success leading up to the failure and then you get the moment where it breaks and then you pivot and you move forwards and you learn from that. Failure is the price of ambition. You cannot fail for the rest of your life, mate, if you're not ambitious. Or you can be ambitious and you can be failing all the time. I know which one I'd rather do. Do you think people celebrate the small numbers enough? Because even when I started my podcast, and no doubt you would have had to, you had to have your first thousand subscribers. I had to get, my friends all took the piss out of me when I got a plaque that actually said that we had a thousand subscribers on it. And I got it printed on and I put it on the side of the back. And it's there, (laughs) it's holding it up now. There you go. And a few months later, we've almost doubled our target and a half. Your own little homemade play button is that? Videos achieved over one and a half million views on YouTube. I still actually got the same level of happiness and pleasure out of hitting a thousand subs as I have done doubling the targets we set ourselves by Christmas. So do you think that people should embrace and celebrate the small victories like you get in those first positions back in the day? I think that celebrating a target is actually never a great thing anyway. I don't think you should set them either. I think if you say to yourself, I want to have a hundred thousand subscribers in the next six months, Where's that going to leave you in six months? You've either surpassed it and think, what the hell was that target all about? I should have aimed higher. Or you don't hit it and you feel like you failed. Either way, it's not a great outcome. So you need to develop this idea of like, is it infinite purpose? So your your podcast, your life, the lives of the people watching this, my life, it's not about the outcome. It's about the process. It's about the doing. It's like life's a verb. It's a doing word. Like it's constant and it never stops, right? And I think a lot of us, delay our own happiness by thinking there's going to be a moment where I'm happy. There's going to be a moment where I'm content. There's going to be a moment where it's like, oh, now everything makes sense. Mate, that shit never arrives. It's about this. It's about just getting through. So if you're setting targets, I think you're you're setting yourself up for failure, even if you're successful, which is a real sad way to live and to operate. So this idea of infinite purpose is what really matters to me. So my job with high performance is every single day, to reach more people around the world, to get them closer to their own version of high performance. Well, we can always reach more people and get them closer. You know, my infinite purpose of being a parent is every day to make my kids feel more safe and more secure so they can get closer to living the life they want. Well, they can always feel more secure and more safe with me. And therefore they can always get closer to the life that they want. It's a never ending cycle of process. If you focus on the process, you will enjoy the progress. If you don't focus on the process and you focus on the outcome, you're not going to enjoy anything. Like people may, they think it's about the view and they don't realize that the climb is the mad, fun, crazy stuff like this. 
Even if you have got 100 million subscribers in six months and you've got an office of 30 people, right? You will miss the days of being in this van, the two of you driving around trying to make something happen. And that feeling when you get like a, a viral video pops, like, you know, Ben coming on and talking about being the stick, those moments, like if that happens every week, do you still get a thrill? No, you don't. So enjoy these times, man. Enjoy these struggles. They're, they're amazing and they're very powerful. Jake, that was an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. If anybody wants to check out Jake's new book, uh, there'll be a link to it in the description of this video. You've certainly changed my life a little bit by having this conversation and it's been a pleasure to talk to such an inspiring host as well. Thank you so much for coming on and Mate, I wish you the best of success. Thank successes. you so much. Let Cheers. me leave you with three lines. This is what high performance is. Best you can where you are with what you've got. That's all high performance is, nothing more, nothing less. So be kind to yourself and go and do the best you can where you are with what you've got. Thank you. Top man. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.